Good morning, Renaissance family. My name is Jordan. Uh, I am one of the pastors here. I have the great privilege of being with you all today, uh, hopefully breaking down some scripture in a meaningful way. Hey, one quick commercial announcement uh, for everybody who is new to DNA groups in that you signed up for DNA group, you've never done it before. There is a mandatory um, orientation immediately after service upstairs in the gym. For my people watching online, uh, you should have also gotten an email about a link to a Zoom for tonight. Now, this is only for new people to DNA groups because we want to set you up well for success, and we don't think it's a good idea for you to hop into a group and not know what to expect and really the best way for them to operate. It's not going to be a long meeting. It's going to be immediately after service upstairs in the gym for about 20 minutes. You should have gotten that email. And here's the thing. We really need everybody who is signed up for the first time to be there because if you don't sign up, the Lord is going to remove you from the groups. Um, it's not going to be me. It's Jesus who, who took you out. No, but we really want to set y'all up for success, so uh, immediately after service, go upstairs from our online folks, uh, or if you can't stick around for whatever reason, uh, you should have gotten an email from Jessica about the link for tonight's Zoom. And if you can't make any of them, please respond to that email so we can know that you're still interested. All right, let me pray for us before we get into today's message. Uh, God, our good and gracious Father, Lord, we don't take this moment for granted, the ability to sit with our brothers and our sisters to hear your word, to be around each other, Lord, to be with each other. Lord, I pray that this moment would be a moment that we would be able to hear from you and meet you. I pray that you would speak to us, Lord, that you would speak to me, and Lord, that we would grow as a result. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. So we've been in this series for the last couple of weeks called Embodied, uh, connecting our faith and our bodies. Now, essentially, we have really one goal because the Bible has a lot to say about the skin that you are in. And there's a lot of theology about who God is and who you are based on our bodies. And our hope in this series is that we can recover that theology of how we think of ourselves, how we are to think of God, and so many different other concepts. Now, last week, we talked about something that a lot of people found very helpful and hit right on the nose, uh, something that God who created us all, when God had something in mind for you, that God created you and he created you to be good. When God looks at you, he sees a good thing. God creates good thing that God does not create any junk. And that includes you. We looked at Psalm 139, verses 13 through 14. And it says this, For it was you, God, who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb, I will praise you because I have been remarkably, remarkably and wondrously made, or fearfully and wonderfully made, as some translations say it. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. Now, what the psalmist does here is he points our eyes in the direction of this, that it is impossible for you to worship God, the creator, well, if you simultaneously hold on to shame about his creation. What we're saying when you and I harbor shame is that, God, you made a mistake when you made me. Or when we shame other people, it's that, God, you made a mistake when you made them. So in order to worship God as a creator, we need to do something and learn how to uh, deal with this big topic of, of shame. Now, I won't go re-preach that message. I went like 49 minutes. I know they don't preach that long, um, but I would definitely welcome you to, to listen to that message if you haven't caught up on it. But basically, I don't think I have to give a definition of what shame is. 
Shame is the feeling that you are unworthy of love. Shame is the feeling that there is something wrong with you. Not just that you have done something wrong. Feelings of conviction that you have done something wrong are good. You and I need truth tellers in our life. We need real friends who will tell us the truth about ourselves and not just be cheerleaders uh, telling us everything we do is good. You and I need the Holy Spirit, which gives us conviction of sin that points us in the right direction so that you and I can live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Becoming aware of our flaws is not a bad thing. However, feeling like our flaws make us defective, that there is something wrong with you, that there's something wrong with another person, is the feeling of shame. And most of the time, we feel and experience shame based on three different reasons. One, things that we have done. In our own minds, we have decided that there is a list of things that disqualify us from being loved by God. Maybe it's something you've done that you're, not in, um, you're too embarrassed to say. Maybe it's something that you, you've done that you said you'll never do again, but you've done it over and over again. And that feeling of shame creeps in when we do stuff that we know is wrong and we don't feel like we can stop doing it. Other times, the shame doesn't come based on what we have done, but based on what other people have done to us particularly for people who have experienced the sharp pain of rejection. One of the quickest emotions to grab whenever we experience emotion, uh, rejection is that clearly something must be wrong with me. This is why this person rejected me. That there is something fundamentally wrong with who I am because if there wasn't something wrong with me that all these people keep on rejecting me, then I wouldn't have been rejected in that way. Or sometimes it's been traumas that you've experienced, uh, maybe as a child, that make you feel defective and, and wrong. The last one, another big driver of shame is not based on what you have done or what other people have done to you. It's based on the comparison trap. The comparison trap is that you would have been totally fine and happy with your life until you look to the left and to the right and notice someone else having something different. And because they have something different than what you have, you have reasoned that something must be wrong with you because you don't have what other people have. You know, the best analogy I know of this is, imagine you put your, you know, you put your name in a lottery for one of these new constructions. It's a new development, it goes up, it's right above the 2-3 train, and they have a two-bedroom apartment for $1,200 a month. You fill out the form because you saw it on Twitter, you don't think you're gonna get it, but then three weeks later, you get the email. In big letters, congratulations, your name has been selected. You're hyped. You go to the rental office. You're sitting down. You're singing gospel music the whole way there, <laughs> praising the Lord for what he has just given you. You sit down in the rental office, and you look down at the person next to you, and they're like, oh, man, why are you here? You're like, yo, you know what I'm saying? God is good, man. Favor ain't fair, you know? <laughs> um, just got this two-bedroom. Yeah, it's something like, you know what I'm saying? Nothing, nothing, nothing too crazy. And they're like, oh, man, that's what's up. I just won the four-bedroom with the balcony. <laughs> now, immediately, your songs of praise that you were singing to God about how good God was for giving you this beautiful, brand-new uh, apartment with a dishwasher and all of that immediately goes to feelings of regret and sadness, not because there is anything different about your life. Your life hasn't changed at all. The only thing that has changed is your perception, your vantage point. You're now no longer looking at what you have. You're looking at what other people have. And it makes you devalue the things that God has given you. Whenever we look to the left and to the right at other people in our lives, uh, shame is something that is quick to grow underneath those crevices. 
Because we're now saying, we are now unable to see the blessing that God has for us, and it makes us feel unloved and uncared for, and it makes us feel sometimes feel shame. So the comparison trap is a very dangerous thing to be caught in on. Now, whether it's things you have done, things other people have done to you, or the comparison trap, uh, to really recover a good theology of yourself, the skin that you are in, it requires to know that God made you on purpose, handmade, and that God does not make no junk. So the feeling of shame is always misplaced. Shame is always a liar. Genesis 1 says something very similar in verses 26 through 31. Actually, I'm going to skip down to, I'm going to read 26 and then skip down to 31. Then God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. In verse 27, it says, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created the male and female. Down to verse 31. After God created humans and God created all the birds and the plants, here's what God does. God steps back. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. God, as the author puts it, is like an artist that has been working diligently at a painting, at a creation. The artist takes a step back to take a peep and look at what he has created. And God, the master artist, looks at it and says, it is very good indeed. Now, why is this so important? This is so important because if you take a different conclusion... If you come to a different conclusion than the one that God has come to, that God's creation, people, you, are very good indeed, then you're not looking at it from the right perspective. Your opinion can't be trusted. Your opinion of the matter is not in accordance with the master creator who says already that it was good indeed. So if you draw a different conclusion about yourself or someone else, you're not looking at it from the right angle, and your opinion should not be trusted, Uh, Years ago, uh, 2018, uh, an organization called the Harris Poll did a survey in America to determine what is the best Mexican restaurant in the entire country. (laughs) They surveyed a lot of people, and the conclusion that they came to after polling 77,000 people was that the winner, the best Mexican restaurant in America is Taco Bell. (laughs) I know. Y'all are not going to be able to pay attention to anything else in the rest of the sermon. You're going to be so mad. My wife and I did a sabbatical in Mexico City a couple of years ago, and I remember the pure joy of sitting at a taqueria, a taco stand in Mexico City, eating a delicious, handmade, freshly carved taco. When you compare that to Taco Bell, actually, you can't. It's like dog food compared to, <laughs> compared to the real Mexican food. So check this out. If anybody, anybody who has come to the conclusion that Taco Bell is the best Mexican restaurant in the country, they're obviously not looking at Mexican food from the right perspective. Because the conclusion that they have reached is so outrageous that it really doesn't even belong being shared. Check this out. When you come to the conclusion that you're worthless, that you're defective, It is so far from the creator's perspective of what goodness actually is that your opinion of yourself is as reliable as that poll on Taco Bell. It should be discarded. It should never be talked about. Anything or anyone that tells you that you are defective is a liar. 
So the same thing is true with us. If we look at ourselves or someone else who has been made in the image of God, if we devalue that, we experience shame or want to shame someone else, we are missing out on the full intent. Shame is always a liar. The enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And one of the best ways he can steal your joy, kill what God is planting inside of you, is by making you experience shame or by making you want to shame and someone else, shame someone else and make them experience shame. So God made us good, and that's what last week was all about. God has made you good, but God did not make you identical to him. Have you ever thought about that? God made you good. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, but you ain't God. Immediately after God created us, here's what God does. He gives us limitations as a reminder that we are not him and he is not us. In Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17, it says this, The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Christian theology teaches that when God made us, God created us, he created us in his image, but he did not make us exactly like him. And we see this most notably here in Genesis 2 in the limits that God immediately places on Adam and Eve. They were not to eat from the forbidden tree. You and I bear God's image. However, it is normal for us to be limited in some capacity as God's created beings. Now, it's really interesting to note this. If you study the Bible, you'll know that there are basically four acts in Scripture. There's creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation is that God created a good thing. That's what we talked about last week in Psalm 139 and what you see here in Genesis 1. God's perfect intent for humanity was God's creation in the garden. This was what God intended, for there to be harmony between people, for there to be dependence and joy in communion with him as God, our Father, to walk with us. But something happens later in Genesis 3 called the fall of man, where Adam and Eve sinned by eating the fruit that God told them not to eat, and immediately their life was now tainted. And really, the second chapter or the second act in the story of all of Scripture is the fall. This disruption of what God has originally intended for us. The next majority of the book of the Bible really is all about Jesus' redemption of us. So what does it take for fallen people to be in right standing with God? And there's all of these different books that show the effects of sin and the fall of man. And God came in the person of Jesus to fix all of that. And the last act is restoration, that Jesus is coming back to restore all things. So creation, fall, uh, redemption, and restoration. If you want to understand God's plan A for humanity, you got to look at the creation. And God's plan A for my life. God's plan A for your life before there was any sin is that you and I would have limitations, that you and I would be limited in what we are able to do. Your body is limited. There's certain things in the Bible that a lot of people would embrace and give a lot of amens to, but when you start talking about a theology of limitations, uh, it's not something that we pay a lot of attention to or really want to pay attention to. So limits are God's plan A for your life, and you and I, living within the limits that God put on us, um, are God's intention for us. 
Here's a crazy point. God has given you limitations because he loves you. God doesn't love you despite your limitations. God has given you limitations because he loves you. Why is that? Because you and I were created to live in joyful dependence on God and on other people. So God created you with limitations. The garden that God placed in the middle of the garden, the, the tree that God placed in the, middle of, in the middle of the garden, it's there strategically. It talks about that tree being planted in the middle of the garden. And why is that? It's because no matter where you are in the garden, you could always see your limitation. It's not tucked off in the corner in Staten Island somewhere. It's in the middle. It's in the Mecca. It's in the, the place that everybody could see at all points. God wanted to visually remind them at all times that you are limited. There are some things you can not do. And this is my plan for you because I want you to live in joyful dependence, not reluctant dependence, but joyful dependence on God and on other people. But if you're like most people, you don't feel loved by your limitations. You feel trapped or judged by them. And that is basically because we are looking at ourselves in the wrong light. God gave us our finiteness, our very limited strengths and weaknesses in order that we might know him and experience him in as many manifestations as possible. We are limited because we are loved. Check this out. God is infinite and you are not. You are limited by so many different things. Uh, many of us are limited by the scars and the wounds of the things that have happened to us uh, when we were children. There are some things that have happened to you that, yes, praise God, there's healing, there's growth, but that will forever be a limit that you have in your life. And the only way to really navigate life well is to embrace that limitation and to accept it. For those of you who are coming out of addiction, that's a limitation. You can't just go around and do things like everybody else does. You have to always be on guard. That limitation is meant for your good. For those of you like myself who struggle with anxiety, Right? So I've been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder for the last decade. If you struggle with anxiety, you can't just do things like everybody else does. You can't. There are certain things that you need in place in order to thrive and survive. Many of us have other emotional um, disorders that we're struggling with. Your physical body is a limitation. As you age, it's a limitation. Each decade presents itself a new set of challenges. People joke all the time about, like, when you get older, you turn 40, something new just starts to hurt. But that joint really is true. <laughs> like, when you turn 40, I think, I can say this with good authority, I've been 40 for about 300 days. <laughs> you no longer want things to be perfect. You just want them to not mess up as quickly. <laughs> You're like, my foot hurts, and it's just always going to hurt. Like, my foot is always going to hurt. I just hope it just doesn't hurt worse than what it does right now. Aging is a crazy and real limitation that we all experience. Young children are limited in their capacity to understand, even though their bodies are amazing and healthy. Your intellectual capacity, all of these different things are limitations on our lives. If you have kids, that's a limitation. Some parents say amen to that. As we age, those are limitations. If you're single, that's a limitation. I joked about this before, and I, it actually was a, an inappropriate joke about during the pandemic, so many people who were single and living alone were really struggling with uh, not having received touch. 
because their body was meant to be touched. Your body was meant to be loved and to be touched, to, be, to experience touch. There's so many different studies that have shown conclusively that like, if you go without human touch, it like, will drive you crazy. And if you're single and you live alone, that's a limitation that you may have. For married people, it's a limitation. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7, that if you are married, that's a limitation because it's a loss of freedom. Here's the thing, if you're dating or engaged, if you want your life to continue the way that it's going right now, don't get married. Seriously. If you want freedom, please don't get married. If you want to just do your own thing and pursue your career or whatever to the nth degree, don't get married. Because every relationship requires a loss of freedom in order for that relationship to thrive, especially the covenantal relationship of, of marriage. Marriage is a limitation. Your culture is a limitation. Now, for people who grew up in minority cultures, you realize it's been painfully obvious to, to you your entire life that your culture is a limitation. I was with a friend one time, uh, some white friends. We went to a Yankee game, and the cops started talking to us. And the way I approach cops and the way white people approach cops are very different ways. The cop was like, hey, I was like, all right, here we go, hands. <laughs> and they were like just talking crazy. I was like, yeah, this must be amazing to just... You just talk to the cops like that, like it's all good and nothing's going to happen. That's, that's incredible. But people from majority culture oftentimes don't realize that your culture is a limitation. There's a lot of things about life and society and other people that you just don't understand. A lot of times, like there's jokes that we'll say on stage and everybody's around you is laughing and you're trying to pretend like, I think I got it. I'll Google it later, what he said. But there's some things that you can't do just because of your culture. And your inability to really connect with people sometimes is not because you don't have good intentions, but just because you are limited. And one of the most damaging things that I've seen people do, particularly in ministry, is when people from majority culture don't realize their limitations. So they try to import their culture on someone else to dominate them. So all of these different limitations that we have, um, God is omniscient, God is all-knowing, but you are limited by your own intellectual capacity. And check this out, listen, if you do not embrace your limitations, even in just your, un, your limitation of what you can know, what you do know and what you can know, like you can really do people harm. Not just yourself, but you can do other people harm. I was thinking about people who are going through seasons of grief, and one of the most harmful things to people who are really experiencing pain are other people who are know-it-alls or who desire to be know-it-alls. So there's two extremely unhelpful things that people uh, who, are, who refuse to embrace their limitations do when they are around other people who are experiencing grief. The first thing they do is they stay away. In their brains, they should be able to come up with a really good thing to say to make this other person feel better. And until they come up with that thing to say, they just stay away. But then weeks and months can go by and they never come up with anything good to say because there's a limitation on what you can say. The other thing that people do, which is equally harmful, and I certainly want to talk about, back up for one quick second, when people stay away because they want to know the right thing to do and to say and they don't know it, uh, you do a lot of harm to people. You know, certainly in my most painful moments in life, I can think about the friends who were committed to be awkward with me. They just came by and they were awkward. They had no idea what they were doing. One of my dear friends, uh, a brother who I love, I'm gonna bring him to Renaissance one day. This dude has no theological degree. He, was, he and I had very little in common. 
And he just committed to being awkward with me, and we would eat chicken wings and watch the Knicks lose together. He wasn't trying to say anything deep. He wasn't even pretending like he had something to say. But so many Christians who are supposedly so mature, so advanced, they were the ones who stayed away. Why was that? Because they assumed that they were going to reinsert themselves when they had something profound and deep to say. On the other end, people who don't stay away, um, some of them needed to stay away because they come and they say very stupid things. One of those incredibly stupid things is, you know, God needed another angel. I'm like, you know what? I wish he killed you and took you instead. <laughs> I didn't say that. I wanted to say it, but I didn't say it. God did not need another angel. You didn't need to insert some ridiculous thought to that. You could have just sat in the ashes with me and grieved with me. That's what I would have appreciated. And that's what people need. They don't need a really snappy and amazing comment. But what is it that drives people to say something ridiculous and deep and read some Twitter quote over somebody's life? It's this refusal to embrace their limitations that I'm going to come into this conversation and I have no idea what I'm supposed to say. I'm just going to sit here and match whatever pace that they're setting. If they're crying, I'm going to hand them a box of tissues. If they're watching Martin reruns and laughing, I'm going to laugh alongside with them. When we refuse to embrace our limitations in every single capacity, we, we harm ourselves and other people. So God gave you limitations because he loves you. And check this out. The enemy whose job it is is to steal, kill, and destroy He wants to destroy your life, to kill the good that God is trying to sow in your life by making you disregard your limitations. Genesis 3 says it like this. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, like did he really say, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, 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 no. You're not going to die. You certainly will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened um, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She gave also to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. What's happening in Genesis 3? There's a limitation that God put on their life. The tree in the middle of the garden, don't eat it, don't touch it. What does the enemy do? He perverts that by saying, you don't need that limitation in your life. It's not really like you're not going to die. God just knows that he, you're going to be like him. And by pursuing a limitless life, they destroyed themselves. There's a story about how animal dealers catch wild monkeys. It's a really excellent illustration of this truth. See, monkeys are greedy creatures, and they can be caught by a combination of curiosity, greed, and ingenuity. These animal trainers take a number of really narrow-mouthed jars, and they place some really shiny beads on the inside, but they anchor the jars really firmly to the ground. So these monkeys in the wild see these jars, they see the shiny beads on the inside, and they immediately stick their hands on the inside to grab a fistful of beads. However, because the width of your fist is greater than an unclenched hand, 
it's impossible for the monkeys to withdraw their hands again. Does this mean that the monkeys will drop the beads and try to figure out another way to get them? Not at all. These monkeys cling to the beads until their captors come, place them in cages, and release them by breaking the bottles. Now, unfortunately, many of us are engaged in monkey business, sometimes in more ways than one. We become fascinated by some imagined prize, and we refuse to let it go, even if it destroys us. I think the enemy would want to destroy us by making us hold on to something that we were never meant to hold on to. God, because he loves you, has given you limitations. Briefly, there are a couple ways I want to highlight um, what happens when you and I refuse to embrace limitations, some warnings uh, for us. When we refuse to embrace the limitations that God has for us, we violate the intended purpose of our body. We violate the intended purpose of our body. You know, we're going to get to this later on in the series when we talk about work and fatigue and, and rest. But some of us right now are praying for God to make us rested, and we're holding on to a pace of life that we were never meant to hold on to. You're limited. You know what's like hilarious Christians do? We say grace before every meal. So it could be somebody with high cholesterol praying over a bacon cheeseburger like, Lord, would you bless this food? May it nourish. May it nourish my body, Lord. A double bacon cheeseburger and fries is not going to nourish your body. It's going to raise your blood pressure and put you in the hospital. Equally we, equally, we say prayers over our work life. We come down for prayer like, man, I just need to figure this thing out. We, we ask God for guidance and blessing on something that he doesn't want us holding on to. Many of us are running at a pace that God is like, you're exhausted? Yes, this is why, because you're violating the limitations on your body. For many of us, the holiest thing that you need to do is go home and take a nap. It's to email your boss and say, hey, I, can't, I actually can't do that. It's to learn how to cut back and to say no to certain things. We do our bodies uh, a disservice, and we lie to ourselves by pretending that we are limitless when we are not. We have to pay attention to our bodies, as one of my mentors say, our bodies are major prophets. So number two, uh, so we violate the intended purpose of our body. Uh, Number two, we experience shame and discouragement. Y'all, when I was going through the list of my life of the things that I feel like bad that I don't do on a daily basis, I got tired. So... I'm learning, this is what I'm learning, that it's okay that I can't wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning regularly to spend an hour with God, then have energy to get my sons up and dress for school, then go to the gym, then go to work and respond to every email and Slack message, then write incredible sermons and be attentive to everyone that needs me with real empathy to the issues in their life, then leave the staff well, then come home and be attentive uh, with my wife pour into my marriage, cook home-cooked meals three times a week, clean the kitchen every single night, be a good father to my kids, give them time and energy and attention, go to PTA meetings, one day develop my sons to be NBA players that will lead the Knicks to a championship, be a good friend and randomly check in with my friends and my family, call family members, and also have some personal time to enjoy myself. Your list is different than mine, but I'm learning to laugh at myself and to embrace my limitations that God has given me by saying no and learning to adjust my expectations of what I should be in pursuit of and also helping other people to adjust their expectations of me. 
One of my mentors always says, no, I'm not busy. I'm just, I'm just limited. I'm not busy. I'm just limited. So I used to be able, I used to be one of those people who, unless the calendar thing was booked in that slot, I would say, I can make it. And I would like come to the end of my day absolutely exhausted, drained emotionally, no good for my family, no good for myself, because I was just saying yes to jam that calendar with as many things as possible. So at the end of this, we really truly do experience shame and discouragement when we don't embrace the limitations that God has given us. Because here's the worst part about that. When you don't do that, you end up hating yourself and turning against yourself instead of turning to God the true source of help and life. Number three, we miss out on getting help that we could be getting from other people. It's true that you and I experience the most love from other people in our place of greatest need. When God gave you strengths, it wasn't so that you can feel better about yourself. When God gave me strengths, it wasn't so that I can parade them around. It's so that I would have the privilege of helping someone else in need. And when God gave you and me weaknesses, which are many, his purpose was not to make you ashamed and discouraged. He gave them to me and he gave them to you so that you and I would have the astounding privilege of humbly receiving someone else's love as they graciously serve us in our place and time of need. And then joyfully responding to them with grateful love in return. You know, as a pastor for the last eight years here at Renaissance, it's been a trend that I've seen a number of times. There are people who I'll ask them how they're doing, and they're like, oh, everything is straight. And I'm like, all right, cool. And then months later, I realize that their life is truly unraveling. Sometimes it's financially. I ask them how they were doing. They said it was cool. And next thing I know, they're up to their eyeballs in debt. And cars are being taken away. Lights are being cut off. And they refuse just to ask for help when they actually needed it. Other times, it's their relationships, their marriage, and I don't get brought into the conversation until papers have been served. Now, God can do all things, but we rob ourselves life, peace, health, actually receiving help when we pretend like we can handle life all by ourselves. The reason we don't ask people for help is because deep down inside, we have refused to acknowledge that we are limited and we need other people. The goal of life is that you would live joyfully dependent on God and on God's people. And when we refuse to acknowledge our limitations, you know what we're like? We're like the monkey with a hand in a jar clinging to some version of independence that we think looks good and beautiful, and meanwhile, we're being captured as a result. DNA groups are starting up the next week, and every single semester at DNA groups, my prayer is the same. My prayer is for people to be dependent on each other, for them to be honest with one another, for you to let go of the fake independence that you have and actually trust other people, trusting that God has something for you in the form of other people many times. But it's not going to happen if you are clinging to this fake independence that you think you should have, that you were never meant to have. So we miss out on the help we could be getting from other people. We also miss out... Number four on, um, oops, let me see this. We miss out on experiencing God, man oh man. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking about so many different stories in scripture. For all my Bible scholars in here, I defy you to show me any instance in the entire Bible 
where God shows up to people and shows himself strong in people's lives when they also are strong. God does the, actual, the, the exact opposite in every single setting. That people, the only time people experience God in Scripture is when they are dependent and needy for him. And the only way that you will actually be able to experience God in your life is not from a position of strength, but from a position of need. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is a story about a man named Gideon. And Gideon is leading this army, and he starts off with 32,000 people. And God is like, yo, I see the army. Everybody's looking fly, but it's too many people. So Gideon's like, all right, I'll cut it back a little bit. He cuts it back a little bit, and God says, no, nah, that's, still, that's still too many people. Finally, Gideon cuts it down again, and God is like, that's still too many people because I want to cut it down because after you do what I'm calling you to do, I don't want you to ever think that it was you and your own strength that was able to accomplish it. So God cut the army down to 300 men, and they went and they triumphed in victory. Let me ask you a question. At the end of your life, when you look back on your life, when you are thinking about all the people and all the memories, do you want the story of your life to be that you grinded and grinded and grinded and grinded and barely made something for your life? Or do you want the story to be that you trusted God with everything you had, you put the little bit that you had in God's hand, and God made a miracle out of it? There's one scripture that's in, there's one story in the Bible that's in all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's Jesus who fed the 5,000 people. Each story says the same thing, that God, Jesus asked the people, his disciples, what do you have? Five pieces of bread and two fish. Then Jesus tells his disciples to have the people sit down. They moved obediently, trusting that God was going to do something with their little. God was going to do something with their little obediently more than they could have done in a thousand lifetimes on their own. And you and I miss out on God when we um, don't bring him what we have, but rather refuse to embrace our limitations and try to keep on plugging away on ourselves. Last one is we miss out on the freeing power of the gospel. The gospel is good news, not good advice. It's meant to free you. It's meant to free you. It's meant to be nourishment and encouragement for you, not just for you one day, back in the day you became a Christian and you learned this message called the gospel, but every single day this is motivating you. Ephesians 2 and 1 is one of the scriptures, uh, Ephesians 2 is actually one of the scriptures that I've, I read soon after I became a Christian and it's been one that I've been reading and feasting on for the last several decades. Here's what it says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of the world according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. Paul says, we too all lived previously among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. And then he gives us the two most beautiful words in scripture, but God, but God who was rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, God made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Many of you, for those of you in this room who are Christians, your life started based on the gospel, but it has transitioned to moralism. You spend your day judging yourself by based on how well you have done that day, how many times you've read the Bible, how, many, how adherent you were to the list of 
uh, of commands in Scripture. And we lose out on the power of the gospel when we fail to embrace our limitations. And here's how. God created you as sheep, and he is the shepherd. Sheep are supposed to live joyfully dependent on their shepherd to protect them, to guide them, to lead them, to get them unstuck when they are stuck. But because we have really an alternate theology that says we're supposed to be able to do everything on our own, man, that's a lie from the pit of hell. We are meant to live joyfully dependent on God and other people. So what I want us to do, I actually want us all to uh, have a little bit of an exercise right now. I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to think about what are some limitations that God has put in your life that you have been fighting against? What are some situations? What are some disabilities? What are some weaknesses? What are some people? What are some situations that God has put in your life that you can't change? that you've been ignoring and fighting against. Jesus says in Matthew 11 and 28, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So I want you to think about that limitation that you've been fighting and I want you to take that limitation. I want you to take it to Jesus right now in prayer. Say, Jesus, I've been fighting against this limitation that you have in my life. I've been overfunctioning. I've been doing too much. I've been angry. I've been resentful because I failed to embrace your limitation from me. Jesus, I want to take your yoke over my life, which is lighter and easier, the one that calls me to joyful dependence on you and other people. Jesus, help me to say no to things. Help me to say yes to other things, to being dependent and being vulnerable to other people. Lord, will you lead me and guide me to be joyfully dependent on you, embracing my limitations. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.